Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm joined today by Jessica Nickel. She is the executive director of the Addiction Policy Forum, whose mission is to ensure that addiction is treated as a disease, elevate awareness around addiction, and improve national policy through a comprehensive response that includes prevention, treatment, recovery, and criminal justice reform. So Jessica, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. So you've been very active in advocating for those that are suffering from substance use disorder for quite a few years now, 26 years, as I understand it. Yep. I think this is my year 26 in the field. Tell us where the passion comes from. Tell us how this evolved, how this came about. Um, So my family was uh, hit by substance use disorders and addiction. Both my parents struggled with heroin addiction, and as a result of that, my little sister and I were in foster care and sort of back and forth and ultimately raised by our maternal grandparents. But as a family, we sort of struggled with um, all that my parents and then uh, three, three of my uncles and four aunts that went through sort of that same um uh, that same struggle and coming together and sort of being lost together at times. Um, and, and so as a young girl, I was very focused on wanting to take all of that energy and anger and passion and do something to help other families that might be in the same place. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, so many would be completely lost with that having everyone of their entire support system around them having that kind of decimated through drugs. So how did you make it out? Um, Well, there's two answers to that. Um, First, I'll talk a little bit. My my grandma is a pretty amazing lady. Um, And I think at such a young age, you know, I'm um, sort of probably barely in school, and she was already reinforcing that I needed to hate the drug but not my parents. And that's a a beautiful thing, and particularly for a mom who's, you know, uh, probably in crisis and very upset about what's happening to her daughter. And then and this is 26 years ago. Yeah, it's a long time ago. And so the disease was not understood. It wasn't even recognized as a disease. It was a moral failure. I don't think my grandma saw it that way, though. She taught me, uh-huh. I remember four years old, this isn't your really your mom. This isn't really your dad, Jess. You mm-hmm. need to hate the disease and not your parents. So, and I did. I hated the disease pretty, pretty uh, uh, vehemently and have sort of spent a career doing all I can 
can to um, advance policy or figure out what we can do to help families like mine, like yours, that um, end up in these very desperate, difficult uh, situations of having a loved one um, inflicted with the disease and not necessarily all of the supports available to figure out how to how to help your family and how to get you out of that. Wow. So for the last 26 years, really, you've worked on many different aspects of this that um, uh, helping others with uh, substance use disorder. Um, and that's led you to the Addiction Policy Forum today. So let's talk just a little bit about your experiences, though, advocating for others and how you've built upon that to bring you to where you are today. Sure. Um, so I started out in the prevention field. I, um, I got a newsletter in health class in, uh, in high school about a, a community anti-drug coalition and their prevention efforts. Um, it was called Drug Use Life Abuse, which is one of the drug-free communities coalitions. That's There's 5,000 of them across the country. And where was this, by the way? Jennifer? In uh, Orange County, California. Okay. So I grew up in Anaheim and around there. So I called the number, and it was run by the sheriff's uh, department, actually, for Orange County. Um, and I volunteered, and I uh, wrote articles for an anti-drug newsletter starting when I was 15. And uh, one you know afternoon, um, I got picked up by a sheriff's deputy because I didn't have a ride to our, like, uh, editorial board meeting that they had set up, and uh, he asked me, "How did you get involved in this?" And I'm—I've always been a bit of a, a big mouth and not very shy, and said, "Well, you know, my parents were um, homeless and hungry and struggling, and I'm raised by my grandparents, and I want to do do something to help other families in the same position." And uh, he actually called me later that night and said, "Can you say that same story tomorrow at a uh, a luncheon that we're having?" And then sort of things. Uh, snowballed after that. Um, I got involved at 16 at a national board doing prevention stuff. And um, then I shifted to working on treatment issues when I went to college. Um, and then I knew I was going to come to DC to uh, work in drug policy. Uh, I, I really liked the idea of figuring out what our national response looks like. I was a commissioner for uh, President Clinton at the Office of National Drug Control Policy, where I worked with uh, then director, drug czar, uh, Barry McCaffrey, when I was like 20. And you helped uh, put together the program of drug-free communities, didn't you? I worked for um, uh, Congressman or Senator Portman when he was in the House, and I worked on the drug-free communities legislation and yeah. sort of how we can make sure communities and families are the, the first line that we need to equip with better information and better resources. So um, I've... I've um, always been a believer in making sure we we focus on on that element of this too. So well prepared for your role at Addiction Policy Forum. So tell us a little bit about Addiction Policy Forum and what your focus is here. Um, so the Addiction Policy Forum um, is about uniting the field and all of those six pillars of a comprehensive response that need to be at the table to make this work and to have better success on how we prevent, treat, um, and address substance use disorders nationwide. So prevention, yeah. treatment, recovery support, overdose reversal, law enforcement, and criminal justice reform. Okay. So, you know, I, I've been around a long time now, and uh, we, we sort of go through phases where we get into this is our, our recovery era or our, our you know, recovery focus this year. Oh, this is all about treatment, or we go back to prevention, or we end up at law enforcement. The reality is, if we're going to, to build a foundation to do better for our families 
And there are so many families impacted by addiction in this country. If we're going to do better, that foundation needs to be built on all of these, not just one. Otherwise, we're going to build um, not a sturdy enough table to make this work. Um, one of the programs that, uh, that you have, Jessica, is Program Technologies and Innovation Addressing Addiction. Can you share with us what that specifically is all about? Sure. Um, so how we translate science and practice to our field, and that's the field is enormous when you look at all six of those pillars, right? Um, one of the biggest gaps that I see um, in, in how we are addressing um, addiction nationwide is doing a better job translating what we know. And what we know sort of goes in two directions. Um, we have the some of the best scientists down the street here in Bethesda, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, right? Uh, Dr. Volkow leads a team of um, some of the most amazing minds that have developed research and they sort of know what works and what doesn't. They have new technologies, new innovations. Um, and then from the field, all of the amazing things that our grassroots, our law enforcement, our treatment centers, our families are doing to innovate and change our response, we need to translate in both directions and make sure that we get more of this information out to everyone. And that everyone includes family members that are in the thick of it. That means family members like me that have a lot of fire in our belly because of what this disease has done to our families. It means law enforcement, criminal justice, physicians, clinicians, um, our teachers, our educators, parents. How do we translate all of this science and all of this innovation more broadly so we are in a much different place than we are today in five years' time? So you've been exposed to and you've got knowledge of the people that are kind of uh, the think tank, if you will, mm -hmm. in Bethesda, mm -hmm. and the best practices in the field. And your, beginning, your organization is recognizing many of them. You've got an excellent, a Pillars of Excellence Award. Yeah. Tell yeah. us a little bit about that and some of your award winners. Um, I love bragging about the amazing work that our, um, uh, our folks are doing, the folks on the ground. It's sort of the best part of my job. Uh, and we've talked about pillars. We worked uh, nationally on a um, comprehensive piece of legislation to provide more resources for the field called CARA, the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act. So we have these six pillars um, as a framework in a, um, a pretty broad sweeping piece of legislation that was signed into law last summer. And then how do we sort of take that a step further by really highlighting the amazing stuff that can be done, that can, uh, can be done, that is being done in those six pillars. Uh, so we created this Pillars of Excellence Award. So annually, we're going to um, uh, recognize and honor one of the programs and one of the um, sort of amazing innovations that hap is happening across that continuum. And so we had a big event um, last week to recognize uh, the first six, the first class of our pillars. Um, and the awards were even these really cool sort of pillars embedded in there to just making sure that we are thanking our field um, more appropriately for the work that they do every day that is making a difference. And really, they are pillars. They are um, 
sort of building up what we can and should be doing in a different way to um, to treat, prevent, to intervene um, when an individual has a substance use disorder. So we recognized six of those programs last week. Our prevention program um, uh, was run by a woman named Ellen Morehouse in New York. She started the student assistance program, which is really about providing and creating that early intervention um, program for students. Um, uh, in school systems throughout New York is where it started. And she's done such amazing work and such great outcomes to make sure that that early intervention and all of the support from treatment, recovery, the schools, the parents are getting assistance quickly and efficiently to kids that are in trouble. So how does she do that? She set up a program um, that's sort of spreading nationwide um, to provide when an issue comes up at a school system, um, those embedded um, uh, student assistance program uh, caseworkers and clinicians have the resources that they need to immediately intervene. Um, you know, addiction is like any other disease. We need to focus on early intervention. You don't wait for a disease to get worse before you intervene. So, so they've got people in the school. They do. They're embedded, embedded right yep. there. Yep. And when they've got an issue, it's... Most addiction begins in your adolescent years. Mm. Um, you hear about employee assistance programs, which are not just for substance use disorders or alcoholism, but for a number of things. This is taking some of that same model, but embedding it so much sooner at the school level mm. when you have an adolescent um, who is struggling or has, um, whether it's an opioid use disorder, issues with alcohol, marijuana, combination of um, substance use mm. and academic problems that are coming up or other issues, and you're providing that early intervention and um, uh, assessment and then immediate connection with the programs that are needed. Can I ask kind of a, a practical question about this? Uh-huh. That would seem to be expensive. I think How do they handle the cost? Incredibly cost-effective, actually. Yeah. You, they sort of build on resources that are already in the communities, um, and they just make that more effective by intervening early. You are going to have even greater costs if you don't address that mm. substance use yeah. disorder at 16, mm. and then you're dealing with that in your criminal justice system at 26, costing mm. $40,000 a year. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the cost benefit is so clear. And we also know that the quicker you can intervene, the more success that you can have in treating a substance use disorder. So on the disease model, this is brilliance. It's mm-hmm. pure brilliance. And every school mm-hmm. system in the country, in my opinion, needs to have Ellen's school assistance program. So, so is she getting like the local, um, you know, ADM board is what we call them, uh, you know, the drug and alcohol and mental health board she is providing the, the, the resource as opposed to the school bringing on the resource is really what I'm getting at. Oh, no, no, it's it's the... Working with what's available in the community. Exactly. And engaging them and it's embedding them. It's not reinventing them. the wheel. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay. Fantastic. Okay. So that's one of our pillars. Yeah. So our um, treatment program, we recognized um, Chris Hickey from New Hampshire. And sometimes I, I love... Um, the simplest idea that can have some of the most impact in astounding ways. And Chris, you know, the opioid epidemic has been tremendous in New Hampshire. And you have, you know, firefighters, you know, EMTs that are going over and over again to to administer naloxone to reverse an overdose and sort of the the toll that that takes and sort of being at the front line of of, um, all the loss and all of the devastation. And he's like, we need to do something. So he went into his mayor and he's like, we really need to do something. And I have an idea. 
why don't we just open up our um, fire stations? If you have a problem, put it out there, put some PSAs and some announcements out. If you have a problem, show up at our fire department. And the beauty is that there's a fire department in every community, right? Yep. Um, And they are sort of accessible, a little less threatening than some other systems that you can um, sort of go into. So show up at the fire station and we'll find you treatment. And they've had over a thousand people since it was like, it only started last year um, that have come to fire stations and they have gotten them connected and really connected. They make sure that there's a true linkage to care and that their systems are making sure that they find beds and availability and appropriate care for individuals that come in and ask for help. Wow. Amazing stuff. Yeah, that is. Similar to Perry, but less intimidating. I think that you need to have layered interventions. Maybe Mm -hmm. some folks, a law enforcement model where they are um, offered services if they come in contact or sort of a self-referral model like Perry that you come in and, hey, I need help and they get you connected. That works really well in some communities. Mm -hmm. You need to have sort of um, the right constellation of resources. Layering in having the same service available at fire departments is also something that can be a, a real game changer for communities. So I think we need to to look at this layering approach on all of these interventions, because um, not one program is going to change this epidemic in our community. It's about making sure we piece together all of these individual components and find that right constellation for every community. Yeah. Can you share with us some other Pillar Award winners? Yeah, so very quickly, a few amazing ones. Our Recovery Award um, went to Phoenix Multisport and their founder, Scott Strode. Um, And we know that sort of uh, so much is it's so important to make sure we build really amazing recovery supports for individuals post-treatment, or sometimes that ends up being their their treatment path um, from the the get-go. And so he created sort of a sober active lifestyle, CrossFit and fitness-based recovery community. Um, Right now they're in um, Denver and Boulder, um, Boston, and they're in Orange County, California. And it's free services, everything from CrossFit to weightlifting to hiking to cycling to ice climbing and skiing, but to build those support structures needed um, uh, on your recovery path, building community. And anyone who's had 48 hours sober is welcome. Um, and it, it fosters this um, sense of community that I've seen firsthand and I think is, is just amazing. Um, and, and the uh, ability to replicate that and um, our treatment programs or our interventions, it also needs to be layering. Not everyone um, uh, may be looking for a CrossFit-based um, sure. uh, program, yeah. so you might need a, a recovery community center, which is all over the country and amazing. There's 91 um, community-based recovery support centers all over the country. So maybe that will be your anchor uh, for your recovery. Maybe you're an adolescent in recovery. You need a recovery high school or a collegiate recovery program. You need recovery housing or an alternative peer group um, to have something to attach to that is supportive of your sobriety and your recovery path. Um, So I think we need to be creative. And when we find these gems of innovation, what can be replicated or what does our community need? 
I live, you know, here in D.C. I'm, I might not need a community center. I might have a, um, a, a great start for a, um, a fitness-based community or um, due to the age of folks that are coming together, I really need to have something that I build um, for high school and college-age individuals. And then I'm looking at a, a recovery high school or a collegiate recovery model. So I think once we collect all these beautiful programs and people that work on them every day, it, it, it um, expands our options for how we do this and create um, better equipped communities. Sure. Okay. So a few of the other programs we highlighted. Yeah. Um, uh, Chief Manger um, here in Montgomery County, Maryland, um, created an alternative to incarceration program, um, a sort of a diversion program called STEER. Um, and he even had his clinicians with him during the, uh, the award ceremony um, that really make that connection and handoff when they find an individual and come in contact um, with someone uh, who has a substance use disorder. They instead divert and connect them to community-based treatment services with these embedded uh, uh, sort of clinicians and then really amazing relationships with community-based treatment. It's, it's amazing. And he's a, a really sort of a leader in policing and law enforcement. So I think making sure that folks know this model that he has built um, that has had such great success um, can be something that other chiefs nationwide can take on. So that's um, kind of a precursor to drug court maybe? Yeah, so the way I like to explain it is there's about nine stops. If you if you look at your contact with the criminal justice system, and let me be clear too, I think this is a game changer and something so important. My mom found recovery through a drug court before it was called a drug court. It was a judge that engaged and encouraged her to... Uh, um, to find treatment and found a bed for her and found a recovery support mechanism after that. So I think the, the drug courts are amazing. But if you look at the nine stops that we have in a criminal justice system, courts are, are like stop seven. And so how do we make sure, um, we call that the sequential intercept module, model, you're um, going to go through a sequence of contacts. And, and the more contacts you have, the further down that um, you know, that train, train line that you get. But how do we make sure we have interventions at every point? When you look at Chief Manger or the Perry model or um, LEAD, these are all at the first subway stop. And law enforcement can deflect. What do you call the first subway stop? Law enforcement. Any law Just enforcement law enforcement. Contact. Okay, yeah. encounter with law enforcement. Yeah. Okay. And then, then you have um, probation, you have pretrial, you have prosecutor-led interventions, you have jail, you have courts, you have prison, you have reentry, um, making sure that each one of these, parole, um, you have interventions, you're equipping um, both leadership as well as line staff, and then you put these models into place. Um, because we shouldn't have everything embedded at the seventh subway stop. We need to make sure that we are replicating and learning from these amazing interventions at all the stops. You know, the, the second um, innovation that we highlighted um, was a prosecutor out of uh, Massachusetts. This is John Blodgett, the district attorney up there. So he um, uh, implemented this prosecutor-led diversion um, uh, initiative 
And when they um, come in contact with individuals with a substance use disorder, it may be a first-time offense, it may be a little bit further on, it's a variety of misdemeanors or felonies, but they offer deferred prosecution and connect them to treatment in lieu of prosecuting that case. And then once that treatment program and that treatment path is completed um, so that they can let those those charges go. But you have this DA who is so committed and, and you know, so inspiring about his ability and his belief that if you intervene um, on the earlier end and make sure that you, uh, when you come in contact with anyone with a behavioral health disorder, let's get them into the right care and, and see if we can get them on a different path and out of my subway line into a different one. Wow. Yeah. Powerful. It's wonderful stuff. Any others that you'd care to highlight? Any other award winners? Yeah. So um, we recognized uh, Secretary John Wetzel from uh, Pennsylvania. So he runs all of the prison systems in the state of prison, uh, state of Pennsylvania. And he um, has this amazing program. Also, one simple idea, but man, what a difference it can make. And uh, uh, found a, a very large and growing population of inmates that um, had opioid use disorders. Uh, so they um, began a medication-assisted treatment program, first as a pilot, and now they're going sort of system-wide, um, where they offer um, MAT, the naltrexone, a Vivitrol shot, um, and then connect them with treatment programs while they're still in custody. So they're behind the walls, starting medication-assisted treatment, starting ther uh, therapy and the counseling to go along with that. And then as they get ready for release, they get them connected to make sure that that MAT is continued in the community for up to 12 months and make sure that they have the supports, the recovery supports set up to be successful on their recovery path. It's a genius and he's so committed to this and he's done such great work. It's really, I think, going to be a game changer for Pennsylvania. So often with medication assisted treatment, uh, particularly Vivitrol, the challenge is a financial one and making that viable because Vivitrol, as you know, is very expensive. Yeah. How did they do that? Any insight into how he tackled it? I think that they see the cost benefit, right, of investing in treatment and the costs that that can avert in other systems or down the line. But they have made that in, that investment as a, a state correction system, um, and have, you know, he calls it a game changer, which is amazing. Yeah. He's yeah. Uh, and he's also a real leader nationwide among his peers and other corrections directors. So I think it's something that could really take off. Yeah, absolutely. So. Any others? I think we covered them all. Didn't we cover six? I think we covered six. Yeah. I have so many other programs I could brag about, but those are the six that we started with. Yeah. Well, and you're going to brag about a bunch more. Yeah. So 52 and 52 weeks. Yeah. Tell us about that. Um, so as part of this translating the science, I talked about sort of both directions, right? The science that we know from our researchers and then the innovations from the field. Um, I think there's so much hope that I get, and I know other families and communities and systems feel that sense of hope when you hear about the amazing work that's being done on the ground, that I don't think we've done a great job of, of singing a, you know, the song about all this amazing innovation and commitment. Um, so we launched in January a Focus on Innovation series, which I'm calling 52 and 52, because we're highlighting one program across the comprehensive spectrum a week for the entire year of 2017. Um, I, we have 40 that are already identified and slated um, and are writing them up. And we're putting out a combination of, um, of uh, a document and a write-up about what that program is and how it works, which really can be used for practitioners and programs and policymakers to figure out what is 
what, is this a possible layer for my community? Um, and we're even doing um, some you know, videos and uh, some write-ups for the media and some press releases about the amazing work that each of these, what we're calling innovations, each one of them has a different sort of you know, place um, in sort of their development. Some are new, some have been around for a bit that just we don't feel enough folks know about them yet. Some have great research behind them um, and outcomes. Some are new and are still collecting data um, and sort of figuring out how to tell that story. But they all, um, I think, are representative of what a comprehensive response can and should look like. So you're already, I think, what, five or six into this? I am, yeah. And so tell us about a, a few of those, the, the notable ones. Yeah, so... They're all notable, they certainly. But. So we, we really try to make sure that we are alternating between each of the six pillars to make sure that we're giving airtime to all of the... Sure. Each is equally important. You need to have law enforcement as much as you need to have prevention, treatment as much as recovery supports. No question. Um, but last week's uh, focus on innovation was uh, Kentucky START program, S-T-A-R-T. Um, and START is... Uh, and, and amazing commitment by their program staff and the state folks that have engaged on this start as a child welfare intervention um, so we see um, increased um, uh, in states like Ohio and Kentucky West Virginia and New Hampshire we're seeing an uptick in um, placements into child welfare systems um, and sort of calls uh, for child protective service investigations and issues. We know this from the the boy in the back seat. The mm. you know the sort East of Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. the um, photos that we're seeing that are so heart wrenching, but talking yeah. and, and illustrate the impact on um, children and the, yeah. the sort of children that um, <clears throat> get sort of roped into this. This is particularly. Um, Important for for me, yeah. Foster care is not fun, um, and it it is uh, really important that we're highlighting child welfare interventions um, and how we can do this differently, and make sure that we're advancing our ability to intervene with the safety of the child in mind, but also on keeping families together and. and sort of the, the impact on moms and dads as they lose their children and sort of what that means to their treatment access and recovery path and um, et cetera. So Kentucky Start, um, when they have a investigation begin with Child Protective Services um, and they identify substance use disorders as, a, as an issue, um, they have special clinicians, specially trained clinicians, and then they pair that family with a family mentor. And then they do regular um, home visits and identify the needs of um, uh, sort of the children that are um, in, in the household, but as well as connecting the, the parent with treatment and recovery support and a really comprehensive plan. So you can try to keep that family together and make sure that um, every member of that family is getting proper interventions and treatment. It's, it's again, a pretty simple idea, but a very smart and complex intervention to make sure that you're improving the outcomes for everyone involved. And I think it's beautiful. Wow. The reality is there's a series of uh, things that happen where um, people, um, the agency, if you will, and, and others within the community are able to observe that, oh, We've got we've got a child at risk here, yeah. and you're able to intervene there yeah. before it gets to that point, right? Absolutely. You know, um, 
we also know that compliance and leverage in treatment settings is very effective. This is why drug courts work, right? Or why some of the employee assistance programs work for like physicians and for airline pilots, because you can keep that individual in compliance and, and there is um, a lever that you're using, either keeping your job, keeping out of jail, no one likes to go to jail, or keeping your children. That yeah. is a really important lever. It's a huge lever. And to work with families to help them achieve that and give them access to treatment is a game changer in how we should be looking at this. It's also much more in line with a disease model and understanding that um, even if there has been abuse and neglect, um, if there is an opioid use disorder or substance use disorder, um, getting at the underlying cause um, can make sure that or, or get you on the path to treating that family and fixing those those issues. And it, it is worth, if it's, if it's a safe and appropriate opportunity for that child, um, making that connection can be very worth it for everyone in that family. Wow. Uh, one idea that has spread really throughout the country is the idea of quick response teams. Yep. And there's been a whole um, myriad of different implementations across the country of those. And um, one aspect, I guess a different flavor of it that um, I wanted to touch on was overdose reversal initiatives. Yeah. So um, this is a key ingredient in a comprehensive response. That's why it deserves its own pillar. And we are found finding lots of different types of interventions um, that a community, a city, a county, a state um, can implement um, to make sure that you have that um, overdose reversal component um, on the quick response teams. So this is um, uh, sort of a multi-agency, many times police-led intervention um, when there has been a Narcan or a Naloxone administration by police or EMT or in a hospital to make sure there's follow-up and then you have uh, sort of treatment, uh, recovery, law enforcement, um, usually public health, engaging and deploying to that individual to encourage them um, to seek treatment and offer them a pathway into to treatment and recovery support. Um, so we, we see that in Maryland and Ohio as being a really effective mechanism um, uh, for an, uh, an, an opioid reversal um, intervention. We're also seeing like in Rhode Island, um, we have Anchor ED, uh, which is a emergency room based and recovery support intervention, but at the same goal, um, they found a real uptick in um, um, overdoses and um, not necessarily sure what they should do on how to intervene after that moment, how to use that as an opportunity for an early intervention. Um, so they embedded recovery, peer recovery support specialists in each um, emergency room throughout the state of Rhode Island, and that's connected to um, trained peer recovery um, mentors and coaches um, through Anchor, which is a, a recovery program. And it's a 24-hour, seven days a week hotline. Um, if someone comes in that's in, in need of um, uh, uh, sort of follow-up, um, there's been an overdose, they know that there's a substance use disorder and, and how to respond, um, they call the hotline. Uh, peer recovery coach comes out, um, and uh, sort of Michelle Harder and George o O'Toole are two of the these amazing program leads. And as George says, so they might not be ready for treatment that day, but our job is to light that fire inside of them. And then those peer recovery coaches, they follow up for 10 days, 10 consecutive days um, after that emergency room visit, and they have found an 84% connection to treatment for the individuals that they connect with in those emergency rooms. 84%? Yeah. 
Oh, that's tremendous. It's amazing. So again, in that layering approach, you don't need to do one or the other. Um, These are ways that you can add these interventions and these resources into your community. You can have both embedded and sort of team approaches for some populations. You can put peer recovery support specialists into your emergency rooms, into your jails. Um, But there are ways that we can make sure that um, if someone has overdose um, and we reverse that, there should be an intervention afterwards to get them into treatment and to use that as, um, as an intervening moment to engage them in a meaningful way instead of not doing anything and then you're having an, another administration of naloxone you're sort of the, that that sort of crisis with that individual can continue and we're finding jurisdictions that are doing really amazing things to use that moment well wow that's incredible it's I, awesome uh jessica i could talk with you all day long yeah. on these programs it's it's just amazing the programs that you've uncovered and uh, also uh I, I just i can't say enough um, about your uh, your passion and dedication to this. That makes a big difference. Thank you. Um, so um, as much as I'd hate to, we, we need to start winding this down. So what else would you like to share with our listeners about how they can make a difference fighting the opioid epidemic in their communities? So I think... Um Making sure that we are connecting the latest in science and programs is important for everyone. Whether you're in the field, you're an engaged family member, you're you're listening because this is um, just interesting to you and how you can equip your own family or your own community. Um, get involved and learn more. Like we all need to be students to have more information at our fingertips. And the science is much deeper than we realize. And um, so I encourage everyone to um, to sort of sit down and, and read up and, and get engaged in what we currently know and what we can share with our own, within our own families and networks, with our own neighbor, you know, neighbors and neighborhoods, um, that science and that program as a starting point. Um, it, the smarter we all are on this issue, the better our communities and families will be. A couple more words on the science is much deeper than we realize. Yeah. A few more words on that. The best part, I have a, I have very, I, I can't actually say that. One of the top 10 parts of my job, because I love working with these amazing families that are, um, they take their darkest moments and turn it into a sort of change for their the communities around them, the programs that are doing great work, and they go to work every day to sort of change this and roll up their, their sleeves in this these six pillars. But the other part is I, I get to sit down with like the neuroscientists and the um, am- amazing um, PhDs and, and uh, um, uh, scientists at NIDA and at HHS and in some of our partner organizations to learn from them. Um, and we know so much. Like if you want to understand how to really prevent substance use in adolescence, we know the literature and the science around delaying the age of onset. We've, I've learned from Maureen Boyle at NIDA, uh, one of the smartest scientists that I know. And every time I get to see her, I bring very large notebooks so I can write as many notes as I possibly can take down to learn from her. Um, but we, we know um, that an adolescent brain coming in contact with alcohol and marijuana is very different from an adult brain. We know that girl brains grow up at 22 and boy brains at 25. Um, we know about risk and protective factors, sort of the constellation of risks that can make substance use um, more likely or more possible 
available among adolescents and the protective factors that can protect that child um, from this, this path. It's sort of the, there's this, like a Swiss cheese model. It's when all of these things line up, both on the protective side as well as the risk side that we need to be working towards. On the treatment side, we know about lev levels of care, ASAM levels of care, and what sort of those um, clinical criteria are and all the different pathways for treatment that are available depending on where you are in the stage and severity of your addiction. Amazing research that's been done um, uh, and sort of, you know, clinical progression on the criminal justice side. We know interventions that are um, amazingly effective for individuals with substance use disorders at all nine of those subway stops. Um, so how do we take that and make sure that we get that out to the entire community, to our, our whole field, is really the big challenge that we all have. Wow. Well, thank you again, and I'm sure we'll be hearing much more of you in uh, the weeks and months to come. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay. We've been joined today by Jessica Nickel, the Executive Director of the Addiction Policy Forum, whose mission is to ensure that addiction is treated as a disease, elevate awareness around addiction, and improve national policy through a comprehensive response that includes prevention, treatment, recovery, and criminal justice reform. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this PPT podcast series. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time. <laughs>